to really take Augustine as a person and not just as some stray thoughts you can cobble mm-hmm. together into your own version of a church father that never existed. To really take Augustine requires a very Catholic worldview. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined here by Joe Heschmeyer of Holy Family School of Faith. Thanks for joining the show, Joe. Absolutely, Chloe. When you bring up saints with your Protestant brothers and sisters, saints tend to be a point of contention, something that we don't see eye to eye on. But when you bring up St. Augustine, the tone of the conversation can change. How do Protestants and Catholic theologians talk about St. Augustine of Hippo? Well, you'll find, obviously, some variation within Protestantism, as on any topic. But in general, the more theologically inclined Protestants are aware of the deep indebtedness we have, both as Catholics and as Protestants, to the theology of St. Augustine. He does a great job of harmonizing uh, what Scripture says, of drawing it out, and really clearly presenting on a lot of doctrines, including original sin and others, that maybe wouldn't have been as, as immediately obvious on, on first glance. So from the Catholic side, you've got people like Pope Benedict XVI, brilliant theologian, and he refers to him as the greatest father of the Latin church. So in terms of the whole history of the West, this is the greatest church father. And then when someone asked him which two books you take with him to a desert island, he said the Bible and Augustine's Confessions. So that's on the Catholic side. On the Protestant side, while I, as I mentioned, there are some evangelicals and fundamentalists and non-denominational Christians who view Augustine negatively because mm-hmm. of his associations with Roman Catholicism. There are a lot who really see him as tremendously important. I want to highlight two of them. One of them is the 19th century uh, church historian. He's an Anglican, Philip Schaeff. He's really famous usually for his works on the early church fathers. But he refers to Augustine as a philosophical and theological genius of the first order, towering like a pyramid above his age and looking down commandingly upon succeeding centuries. And the other is the Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul. And here's what he's got to say about St. Augustine. If there is any giant that stands out in the history of the church as the man upon whose shoulders the whole history of theology stands, it is a man by the name of Aurelius Augustine, St. Augustine. So it sounds like there is a common appreciation of Augustine, but do Catholics and Protestants really understand St. Augustine the same way? They don't. I think that, uh, now obviously this is coming somewhat from a Catholic perspective. (laughs) True. But I think we take Augustine more seriously than Protestants do. And by that I mean that there is pretty brazen cherry picking in terms of what Augustine said. And they'll take a few statements on a few topics and try to morph that into the claim that Augustine was basically a Protestant. So I'm thinking here especially of Benjamin B. Warfield, who said that it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation. For the Reformation, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. In other words, as a Protestant, Warfield likes what St. Augustine has to say about grace. But he rejects what St. Augustine says about the church. And he views the Reformation as taking one of those over the other. Well, the problem with that view, from a Catholic perspective, is to reject 
Augustine's theology of the church is to undermine Augustine's entire claim to fame. The reason we have sermons and homilies of Augustine is that he was the Bishop of Hippo. If he shouldn't have been a bishop in the Catholic Church, you're not going to get any of those homilies. So to attack basically his legitimacy as the actual ordinary over uh, the city of Hippo undermines everything else about him. So you're rejecting the man while trying to take one or two of his beliefs or one or two statements he has separated even from a larger context within. You know, it's not even a, a full and complete understanding of Augustine's doctrine on grace. So to give a kind of a silly an example, uh, Bernie Sanders in Vermont is famously very liberal. He runs as a socialist, mm -hmm. but he's very pro-gun rights. He's a Vermonter at the end of the day. And so if you were to say, oh, I think Bernie Sanders is a conservative because he said this thing about guns, I think anyone else listening to you would say, well, that's ridiculous. You've just taken one position and separated it from everything else he believes and stands for and held him up as the opposite of, of how he understood himself, understands himself. So the same thing here for Augustine. To say Augustine really was basically a reformer or would have been a Protestant or anything like that is an absurd misuse and abuse where you're no longer saying, who is this man and what did he believe? You're just saying, oh, I like that sentence. If you take these sentences over here mm -hmm. and put them together, you form a thought that I like. And it separates the thought from the thinker, and it separates the idea from the believer. And at the end of the day, it just is not taking Augustine very seriously. St. Augustine has a lot of things to say about relics. Why is the topic of relics something that's controversial for Protestants? So Protestants, by and large, really reject relics. So I want to, James White, who is pretty famously anti-Catholic, I think, says that there are few things more repulsive to the lifelong Protestant than relics. And nothing more creepy than entering an old-style traditionalist Roman Catholic church filled with skeletons and bones and the like. The relic trade continues to this day, despite how often modern Roman Catholics try to sanitize this glaring example of gross superstition and unbiblical idolatry. So White isn't just saying Catholics are subtly wrong about relics or they put too much stock in relics or it's overemphasized. He's saying, no, the whole idea is glaringly contrary to Christianity and is in fact idolatry. So as we're going to hear in a minute, Augustine, by this standard, isn't even a Christian. And that's a problem for anyone claiming he's the father of the Reformation. It's a, father for any, a problem for anyone claiming that he's a towering theological genius. Now remember the quote from R.C. Sproul a minute ago. Well, here's R.C. Sproul on relics. Why would pilgrims flock all over the place in huge masses of congregation to view a bone of St. Augustine? Well, the answer is simple, beloved, because the people really believed that that's where the power was. And the people were suffering from the impotency of their spiritual life. They wanted the wonder-working power. They wanted the heavens to open with miracles and showers of divine demonstrative power, and they looked for it in the bones of the dead. What is St. Augustine's experience with relics shortly after he converts? So as you may or may not know, um, Augustine's conversion 
a critical part of it is the role of St. Ambrose of Milan, who Augustine refers to as Ambrose the bishop known to the whole world as among the best of men. Well, in 386, this is the same year in which Augustine converts, Ambrose has this incredible experience. And we actually talk about this in more detail from Ambrose's perspective in episode 14 of this podcast, Mm -hmm. in the episode all about relics. But the short version is, Ambrose has a vision in which he's told where there are two Milanese martyrs. And he, he goes to the spot and finds their relics there. Now, why is this important? Because they're trying to consecrate the basilica in Milan. It's now called the Basilica of St. Ambrose, fittingly enough. And to have the consecration, you need the bones of martyrs to put in the cornerstone of the altar. Now, I just want to stop for a second and say, Ambrose and Augustine are participating in this, which is about as Catholic as it gets. Right. So someone like James White obviously is going to find that creepy and idolatrous and unchristian. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to find it creepy, idolatrous, and unchristian, you have to reject Ambrose and Augustine. You can't just say, I think Joseph Smith has some good points, you know, the founder of Mormonism. Right. If you're going to say the guy's not even a Christian, you can't build your Christian theology off of him. So it can't be both that Augustine is this towering, impressive figure in both Catholic and Protestant theology, and that because he's such a Roman Catholic, he's not even a Christian. One or the other. You've got to choose a position. Mm -hmm. This is a miracle that happens, and Ambrose talks about it in a letter to his sister. Well, Augustine talks about it twice. Once he talks about it in Book 9, Chapter 7 of Confessions, and the other time he talks about it is in Book 22, Chapter 8 of City of God. I want to read that one. He says, The miracle, which was wrought at Milan when I was there, by which a blind man was restored to sight, could come to the knowledge of many. For not only is this city a large one, but also the emperor was there at the time. And the occurrence was witnessed by an immense concourse of people that had gathered to the bodies of the martyrs, Protasius and Gervasius, which had long lain concealed and unknown, but were now made known to the Bishop Ambrose in a dream and discovered by him. By virtue of these remains, the darkness of that blind man was scattered and he saw the light of day. What's going on there? He's saying these relics were applied to a blind man, a man known to be blind, and he received his sight. And this happened in front of a large crowd, including the emperor. Now, in Confessions, he includes some other details that aren't here. He mentions that the emperor is the boy emperor uh, Valencian, whose mother, Justina, so this is the emperor is still a boy, so his mother's ruling, right. basically. And Justina, his mother, was a heretic who was actually persecuting Ambrose. So you have a hostile witness present in the crowd. Someone who has no reason to lie to boost Ambrose in some way. So there's really two miracles here. One is the dream in which these relics are miraculously found. Uh, Gervasius and Protasius were a couple of early Christian martyrs who were probably martyred under Antonius, who reigned from 161 to 168. And they were from Milan. They were believed to be haymakers. And I know apparently it's more than just a punch. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And the second miracle, of course, is that the blind man recovers his sight. And strikingly, Ambrose isn't the only one who sees this. Augustine sees it and says a bunch of other people did too. Mm -hmm. 
So this isn't just that Augustine believes in relics or believes that relics have some efficacy or spiritual power to them. It's that he's saying he watched relics bring about miraculous healing. It's a pretty striking claim. So that's just one instance in St. Augustine's life involving relics. Another occurs decades later. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Decades later, after the miraculous rediscovery of the relics of St. Stephen, we find Augustine recording several different miracles, one of which is a conversion of Christ I want to talk specifically about. And which St. Stephen was the relics of? So this is the St. Stephen in Acts 7. He has the speech to the Sanhedrin, in which he lays out the case for Jesus Christ, and then he's famously stoned to death. Mm -hmm. He has that vision looking up, seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father, says, you know, forgive them, they don't know what they do, and then into your hands I commend my spirit. It's actually one of the strongest proofs that we should pray to Jesus in Scripture. It's one of the only really clear instances of someone undoubtedly praying to Jesus, and it shows the divinity of Christ. Really fascinating We could really talk a lot more about Stephen's role in Acts. Mm -hmm. So the rediscovery of his bones was very exciting to have someone this pivotal to early Christianity. Mm -hmm. So he's rediscovered in the Holy Land, and they then move his relics across North Africa. And so at the time, Hippo is in North Africa. So Augustine is the bishop of one of the stops, as it were, on this, as well as friends with the bishop uh, who's next door. So the particular case that we're talking about is an old nobleman named Marshall. And this is the way Augustine describes it. He says, there was an old nobleman named Marshall who had a great aversion to the Christian religion, but whose daughter was a Christian, while her husband had been baptized that same year. When he was ill, meaning the old man, they besought him with tears and prayers to become a Christian, but he positively refused and dismissed them from his presence in a storm of indignation. It occurred to the son-in-law to go to the oratory of St. Stephen, and there pray for him with all earnestness that God might give him a right mind, so that he should not delay believing in Christ. This he did with great groaning and tears, and the burning fervor of sincere piety. Then as he left the place, he took some of the flowers that were lying there, and as it was already night, laid them by his father's head, who so slept. And lo, before dawn, he cries out for someone to run for the bishop. But he, the bishop, this is the bishop next door to Hippo, Mm -hmm. happened at that time to be with me at Hippo. So when he had heard that he was from home, he asked the presbyters to come. They came. To the joy and amazement of all, he declared that he believed, and he was baptized. As long as he remained in life, these words were ever on his lips. Christ, receive my spirit. Though he was not aware that these words were the last words of the most blessed Stephen when he was stoned by the Jews. These were his last words also, for not long after, he himself also gave up the ghost. So this martyrdom seems so obviously brought about by the son-in-law's prayers for the intercession of St. Stephen at the tomb of, or the oratory of St. Stephen, I should say. And then he goes and places the flowers from there on his father's head. It's rich in this really incarnational, kind of nitty-gritty, earthy Mm -hmm. spirituality, where, you know, spirituality isn't just some sort of bodiless, immaterial contemplation of God. For us humans, we have bodies as well as souls. Right. And we see that very much on display here. The spiritual conversion is brought about through bodily means. Yeah, and an emphasis, too, on the fact that this is a conversion to Catholicism that Augustine's involved with as well. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of Protestants are afraid relics are somehow going to draw people away from Catholicism into idolatry. But here we see 180 degrees mm, opposed yeah. to that. We see a guy who was a pagan, who hated Catholicism, becoming Catholic, accepting Jesus Christ, and then coming to know Christ through St. Stephen in this really unique and remarkable way. So that he's praying Stephen's prayer without even knowing that he's praying Stephen's prayer. And Augustine is there for it. He's not just saying, I heard this great story. He's saying he was there for this. He was there with the bishop when all of this went down. The eyewitness aspect of this is something that sounds very familiar when we first talked about that. And it's because it's, it's very reminiscent of what we hear the apostles saying about their experience with Christ during his time on earth and the experience of the resurrection too. Yeah, this is the entire basis of Christianity. We don't just have um, some historical account directly from Jesus. We rely heavily on eyewitness accounts. They're inspired, but they also are very quick to point out that these are either eyewitness accounts or accounts based on eyewitness accounts. So, for example, in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, St. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says something very similar. At the very beginning of the first letter of John, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So the whole point is, this isn't just an interesting myth. This isn't like Buddha, where you're just like, oh, that's kind of a cool story. Mm -hmm. or, no, they're saying this is eyewitness account. Now, St. Luke, in his gospel, he's not an eyewitness in the same way. But here's how he begins his gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he's saying this account is based on eyewitness accounts. He went and interviewed the eyewitnesses. It's very clear if you read Luke 1 and 2, when he's talking about Mary contemplating these things in her heart, the only way he knows that is if he talked to her. So he's got the eyewitnesses. He's got the people close up. And Christianity is all based on these eyewitness accounts. Well, Augustine is an eyewitness. So just like with the apostles and the Virgin Mary, we have to say, are these eyewitnesses telling the truth or not? And if they are, we should believe what they're proclaiming. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, we should reject them outright. And that, I think, is the same thing we have to say to our Protestant brothers and sisters. You can't have it both ways. You can't say... Augustine is wrong about relics because this isn't just a point of his theology. This is a testimony to which he bears witness. You can say there are a lot of things he happens to be wrong on. Because, you know, you're working in your study or you're in the chapel writing down some thoughts that you've got after reading a particular biblical passage and maybe you're off base. But when you're saying, I saw a guy get healed of blindness through these relics in front of the emperor and a huge crowd of people... As a result of relics miraculously discovered by my mentor, St. Ambrose, how do you get those details wrong unless you're either delusional or lying? Mm -hmm. 
And if Augustine is delusional or lying to prop up what James White describes as this terrible superstition and idolatry, then we should reject Augustine entirely. But you can't have it both ways. You can't be a cafeteria Christian. In the same way that you wouldn't be able to say, I don't believe the apostles when they tell me about the resurrection, but I like a lot of what the apostles have to say. So I'll take like bits and pieces of the New Testament. It doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. It's either false or it's true. You can't reject their eyewitness testimony and then pick and choose the parts you like. Well, the same thing is true here. So Marshall's conversion is just one of the miracles that's experienced with the um, relics of St. Stephen. Um, and St. Augustine goes on to describe many more. Can you kind of give a summary of those? So one of them is another healing of a blind person. This time it's when the bishop projectus, who is the bishop next door that he mentioned before, when they're going to the shrine, there's a large crowd of people, and there a blind woman comes up, and he gave her the flowers that he was carrying, the bishop did. She took them, put them on her eyes, and immediately is able to see again. And this is, again, this happens in a large crowd of people. Mm -hmm. So there's a line that I want to quote. When St. Paul is talking about Christianity, he says, these things did not happen in a corner. If I'm telling you something that only I was a witness to, then maybe I'm lying. Maybe I'm making up these details. But Augustine keeps referring to these very public events. You know, people living in North Africa would remember when St. Stephen's relics came through. They'd be able to pinpoint the day and the time that he's talking about when he says, on the day they brought the relics here, this happened, and the crowd was amazed. Well, the crowd is still alive when he's mm -hmm. writing this. And there's not letters that come out that say, Augustine was wrong, I was there, and that didn't happen. Right, and you have these multiple attestations. So we mentioned the earlier miracle in Milan. Mm -hmm. Well, Augustine and Ambrose both write about that. So does one of the deacons of Milan, Paulinus. So you have multiple people writing about these events. Again, it's not dissimilar to the way the New Testament works. The same reason we trust the New Testament authors, that they're not all just conspiring together and lying, are the reasons we trust when they say these accounts also happen. Mm -hmm. So that's one of them. Another one uh, is Lucilius, Bishop of uh, Sanita, who is near the colonial town of Hippo. And there was a fistula that he had been suffering from, and his physician had been keeping an eye on it to do surgery. But he's immediately cured, and so there's no longer even a trace of it on his body. Another one is a Spanish priest, uh, Eucharias, who was residing at Calama, and he had a stone. The bishop brings the relics to him, and he's cured. More incredibly, this same priest dies... And they're binding his hands for burial. But then people start praying to St. Stephen. And it says, By the succor of the same martyr, he was raised to life. The priest's cloak, having been brought from the oratory and laid upon the corpse. So they took the priest's cloak. They put it on the tomb of St. Stephen or the oratory of St. Stephen. They then bring it to the body. And the man rises from the dead. This is what Augustine is claiming happened while he is bishop next door. These things did not happen in a corner. So then he also talks about uh, two men, one of them a citizen and one of them a stranger who were cured of gout. And he says that the citizen was absolutely cured. But the stranger was only informed that he should apply when the pain returned. So then he comes back 
And that time he's miraculously cured completely. Hmm. So the pain goes away, it returns, he comes back, and then it's gone for good. I mean, these are very detailed kind of accounts. Yeah. Um, Adarus is the name of an estate where there's a church that contains a memorial shrine of the martyr Stephen. So a boy is playing in the courtyard of the church, and an oxen drawing a wagon went off the track and crushed him under the wheel. Mm. Runs the boy over. His mother snatched him up and laid him at the shrine, and not only did he revive, but also appeared uninjured. Then there's there's a few more after this. A religious female uh, living at Caspalium, a neighboring estate, was so ill as to be despaired of. She had her dress brought to the shrine, but before it was brought back, she was gone, as in dead. However, her parents wrapped her corpse in the dress, and her breath returning, she became quite well. So another miraculous return from the dead. Another time, you know, this is in and around Augustine's diocese at the time he's there. At Hippo, this is in his diocese, a Syrian called Bassus was praying at the relics of the same martyr for his daughter, who was dangerously ill. He too had brought her dress with him to the shrine. So then, while he's praying, the servants come and say that she's dead. But before they can get to the guy praying, the guy's friends stop the servants and warn them not to tell him because they don't want him to make a big scene in public. So he's praying there. He continues to pray there. They then bring him back to his house. And it says it was already ringing with the lamentations of his family. And he throws the daughter's dress over her body. And she comes back from the dead. There's also the son of a man, Irenaeus, who Augustine says is one of our tax gatherers. So again, this is someone he knows. A public figure, too, mm-hmm. as a tax gatherer. So Irenaeus' son took ill and died. And while his body was lying lifeless and the last rites were being prepared, amidst the weeping and mourning of all, one of the friends who was consoling the father suggested that the body should be anointed with the oil of the same martyr. It was done and he was revived. That's a very Catholic yeah, sentence. Very, very Catholic so. paragraph. Like that account <laughs> is super sacramental. Mm-hmm. And then he mentions as well one other case. A man named Elianison, who was a tribute among them, said laid his infant son who had died on the shrine of the martyr, which is in the suburb where he lived. And after prayers, which he poured out there with many tears, he took up his child alive. So he just brings the dead baby and lays him on the tomb of, or, you know, the bones mm-hmm. and relics of St. Stephen. And the baby comes back to life. So there's multiple people being brought back from the dead pretty publicly. And these are people who Augustine is identifying, for the most part, by name. He knows who they are. He knows where they're from. He's writing at a time when people would remember these events. So you really have a couple choices here. One of them is to believe for the same reasons we believe in the New Testament. The other is to reject this belief, but recognize that it undermines the basis upon which we believe in the New Testament, which is that these kinds of eyewitness testimony, these specific kinds told by great saints, can be trusted. Now, I should also add that even though these are the specific examples that he mentions, these aren't the only examples that he mentions. After recounting all these cases, he says, what am I to do? I'm so pressed by the promise of finishing this work that I cannot record all the miracles I know. Were I to be silent of all others, 
and to record exclusively the miracles of healing, which were wrought in the district of Kalama and of Hippo by means of this martyr, I mean the most glorious Stephen, they'd fill many volumes. Then he says, For when I saw in our times frequent signs of the presence of divine powers, similar to those which had been given of old, I desired that narratives might be written, judging that the multitude should not remain ignorant of these things. It is not yet two years since these relics were first brought to Hippo Regius. In those miracles which have been published amount to almost 70 at the hour at which I write. But at Kalama, where these relics have been for a longer time, and where more of the miracles were narrated for public information, there are incomparably more. There's a lot to unpack there. First thing to notice, look at how similar it is mm-hmm. to John 21. Yep, we've heard this before, yeah. John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Augustine saying something very similar is true here. The sheer number of miracles. Consider all the miracles we just talked about. He's saying there are 70 in the last two years in my diocese. That's what he's saying. These public, miraculous events, we can put a name, a face, in an event too, and say these sorts of things, the raising of kids and old people and priests from the dead, etc. Miraculous healings, conversions, all of that. He's saying that's just in my diocese. Next door in Kalama, the relatives have been there longer. They've incomparably more miracles. Mm-hmm. That's his testimony. And he's saying that these are things that happened that he saw these things in his time. He saw these frequent signs of the presence of divine power, similar to the ones of old, similar to what we would have gotten in the days of the New Testament. That's his account, that's his testimony. And to reject him on what he knows about his own day, while trying to accept his theology and what he wasn't an eyewitness to in the first century, seems like an utterly bizarre position, but it's one that most Protestants end up having to take. So when it comes to conversations in the future that listeners may be having with Protestants and when St. Augustine comes up, what are things to take away from this episode to remember to bring up in conversations in the future? I would just say be aware that Augustine is an eyewitness to relics. Your Protestant friend most likely will want to pick and choose parts of Augustine's theology. We saw at the very beginning of the episode. There is this desire to say, we'll take this part of Augustine Mm -hmm. on grace, we'll reject this part on the church, and try to pick and choose. Now, I want to say, to an extent, with a theologian, that can be accurate. Sometimes a theologian is really good in one area and really bad in another area. The church fathers aren't always right on everything, and I'm not suggesting that they are. So the fact that they pick and choose on Augustine isn't particularly shocking if it's just a matter of his theological views. But Protestants go further. They reject his doctrine of the church meaning that they reject his entire claim to authority as the Bishop of Hippo. Mm -hmm. They also reject his view on relics as idolatrous and superstitious, which means they reject even his claim to be a Christian. And if you reject his claim to be a Christian, everything else doesn't matter. We don't need to build Christian theology on pagans. We don't need to build Christian theology on idolaters. Mm -hmm. And so if your theological system is based on someone you don't believe is even a Christian, something is wrong with your theological system. 
That's, I think, at the heart of this. So the questions to ask would be something like this. Number one, were the miracles that Augustine claims to be an eyewitness to authentic? If yes, that shows that relics are good. It shows that God is performing these miracles because the devil isn't bringing people back from the dead. Right. The devil can't do resurrections. Mm -hmm. And so if these miracles are really happening, then God is working through the relics of St. Stephen and through these Milanese martyrs and through other martyrs. We didn't even talk about some of the other accounts Mm -hmm. Augustine has. Augustine is a rich resource for relics, but it means that these saints, these Catholic saints really are in heaven. God really does work through their relics. And the whole system of relics that most Protestants find so creepy is actually very Christian, very foundational to early Christianity. Two, if these relics are true, it points very strongly to the authenticity of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Because remember that Ambrose is trying to get the relics to put in the altar Mm -hmm. so they can have Mass in the Basilica and consecrate it. You can still go to the Basilica of St. Ambrose in Milan, and it's still Roman Catholic like it was then. Now, let's take the alternative. Let's say your friend says, no, I don't think uh, that the relics were real. I don't think that Augustine is right about the relics. And you've got some serious problems there. Because Augustine is critical to Christian theology, particularly but not exclusively in the West. Everything from the way we understand original sin, Mm -hmm. how we understand, especially how Protestants understand grace, is really tied to an understanding of Augustine. If you can't take Augustine, then all of the Reformation starts to tumble apart. Luther is an Augustinian monk. Calvin quotes Augustine over a hundred times in Institutes of Christian Religion. So if Augustine is unreliable, not just unreliable on this or that point as a theologian, but a liar or a crazy person who's making up dozens or more miracles that allegedly he saw, but really were just idolatry and superstition. If Augustine is just a 4th and 5th century crazy cat lady, we can't build much of a theology around Mm -hmm. that, can you? I think there's such a beauty in taking Augustine seriously, because when you do take him seriously with a holistic view of everything he writes, what's revealed is this beautiful, rich Catholicism at the heart of the church. In like the three, like 386 is when he converts, and so it's like the early seeds of the church. Yeah, it's tremendously beautiful. I mean, reading the accounts in Confessions, this is one of the things that I think is a little bit of a tragedy. Protestants who read Confessions are missing a lot of the subtext. Mm-hmm. You know... Uh, the whole conversation between Augustine and his mother, where Monica just wants to be remembered at the altar, a Protestant has no idea what that means or why that's acceptable. Like, why you would be doing masses for a particular person. Because he is so Catholic. So to really take Augustine as a person, and not just as some stray thoughts you can cobble Mm -hmm. together into your own version of a church father that never existed, to really take Augustine requires a very Catholic worldview. All right, so let's close today's episode out in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Augustine. Pray for us. Pray for us.